Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, I say then, have they, he's speaking about national Israel, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. In verse 11, Paul repeats what we've already read in verse 1, when Paul said, I say then has God cast away his people. Again in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Remember in chapter 11, Paul reminds the Roman readers that God is not finished with Israel. And the future restoration of Israel is certain. And the present rejection of Christ by the Jews is partial and not total. Remember in chapter 9, Paul speaks of Israel's past. In chapter 10, Israel's present. Now in chapter 11, Israel's future. The Lord God has a remnant. That means those who have been set aside. The Apostle Paul reiterates the promise given in Isaiah chapter 59 verses 17 through 21. In verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. So again in in verse 26 of this chapter... Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul sees a future restoration of Israel. That future restoration of Israel is in the Messiah. It is in Christ. And so... He writes that Isaiah predicted that the covenant with Israel would be kept. That the fall is is not permanent in verse 11 at the beginning of verse 11. In spite of Israel's current blindness towards the Messiah and towards Christ. And because of their present rejection, God will use Israel their disobedience as an opportunity to bring blessing to the nations. When you see the word Gentile, remember, it it, it isn't just simply anyone who's not a Jew. It becomes a broad designation of the nations of the earth. The rejection of the gospel by the Jews has caused preachers to turn to the Gentiles, turn to the nations, and this preaching... And this believing of the gospel has led to the salvation, not just simply of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but millions of people throughout the generations. And Paul is going to suggest that if the Jews had embraced and believed the Lord through the Messiah, that not only abundant blessing would have come, but it it would be a lavish blessing. So Paul presents another argument. Israel's future is in part guaranteed by Israel's past. That Israel in the past was consecrated, set apart to God. And so Paul is a lover and a supporter of Israel. And it seems strange to me. 
how any Bible-believing Christian could be anything other than a lover and a supporter of Israel. Paul's sorrow over Israel's current spiritual condition finds solace as he considers, meditates, and reflects upon Israel's future salvation. Paul sees a supercharged Jewish people as the tip of the spear in a future global outreach in verse 16. So again... Paul gives us instructions in our attitude and treatment of the Jewish people. We Gentiles remember that we're grafted into a deeply Jewish faith with origins in Abraham and God's revelation through the prophets. We are siblings in a sense. The Jewish people are our, if, if we could be so bold, like our flesh and blood in the Hispanic culture, when you're related to someone, you say, carnal. That means they're of your flesh. You'll sometimes refer to your relatives. Oye, carnal, ¿qué estás haciendo? Hey, brother, what are you doing? And for the Christian, the Jewish people are our flesh and blood, not genetically, but spiritually. We have a kind of fraternity. Even if our siblings don't follow the Messiah. Paul in this epistle of Romans has condemned Jewish arrogance against the Gentiles. But Paul also opposes Gentile arrogance against the Jews. And so the gospel doesn't allow for anti-Semitism. The gospel doesn't allow for Christians opposed to Jewish people on cultural or racial grounds. And so look what Paul writes. He says, Israel's fall is not permanent. Remember at the beginning of verse 11, he says, I say then, this is Paul, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And we should probably add what he means by that. Have they stumbled so that they should permanently fall? His response, certainly not. Some individuals do stumble. Some individuals stumble and fall and they never get up. Some people are offended by the gospel and they walk away from the Bible and they walk away from Jesus and they walk away from grace. But Paul is going to suggest something. Not the nation Israel. They will not, they cannot permanently walk away from grace and permanently walk away from the Messiah and permanently walk away from salvation. How is that? Because again, he wants us to abandon the notion that Jews and the Jewish people are forever lost to God or forever lost to the gospel. Yes, Israel has stumbled. And the point that he wants to bring out is that that stumble is not permanent, that God has a plan. And Paul affirms that the Jewish rejection of the Messiah and their attempt to establish their own righteousness apart from the gospel, apart from the Messiah, apart from grace, will ultimately not succeed. Doesn't Israel's disobedience to the gospel permanently disqualify the promises that God has made to them. Paul's emphatic answer is no, no, certainly not. Look at the end of the verse. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The fall of Israel has allowed God, in part, To bring the message of hope, bring the message of grace, bring the message of salvation to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to note something because it really is important. And we would be making a mistake if we ignore it. Paul does not deny Israel's fall 
or characterize Israel's spiritual condition apart from Christ as healthy. You would be making a mistake if you look at your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your friend, and you go, you know, I love my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my, bro- my, my family member, my friend, and that as you love them, that somehow your love alone will be enough to sustain them in God's eyes and provide for them salvation. That that just simply isn't true. People must come to Christ. The salvation of the Gentiles has always been a part of God's prophetic plan. You'll remember at the end when Jesus has risen from the dead and he has spent some 40 days and that he's getting ready to ascend into heaven as he gives the great commission in Matthew 28 um, verses 18 and 19 and 20. He basically says, go therefore and make disciples of the ethnos, the nations, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. The much quoted Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 where the Lord says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you, speaking of Abraham, speaking of the covenant, speaking of the blessing, speaking of the promises, speaking of the future Messiah, in you, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's not just talking about Jewish exceptionalism or Jewish giftedness or that the brain trust and the, the gifting of the Jewish people is, are going to be a blessing to the nations. He's making a specific reference to the reality of God in Christ being the blessing. In Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16, the prophet Zechariah peers throughout human history and Gentile history and the coming of the Messiah and the millennial kingdom. In Zechariah 14, 16, he envisions the whole world being different as a result of the presence of the Messiah. He says, quote, and it shall come to pass in Zechariah 14, 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 17, it says, And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth which do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. In verse 18, it says, If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain, they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to to keep the feast of the tabernacles. The image, the image, the image is of a future king ruling and reigning in Jerusalem where all of the nations acknowledge that that the king is Messiah. Paul doesn't want the reader to be left with the impression That the only reason God saves the Gentiles is to provoke them to jealousy. He says that. But Gentile salvation is going to include that. Is the only reason why God decided to save the nations was to make Israel jealous. I'm going to suggest to you, it can't be the only reason But we can't ignore Paul's reason that he gives. Gentile salvation must provoke jealousy in the Jew. Craig Keener in his Bible background commentary writes, Paul's argument in Romans places Jew and Gentile on the same level when it comes to salvation. But now he reminds the Gentile readers to remember whose faith they have adopted. Gentile racism against Jewish people is as contrary to the focus of Christianity as Jewish prejudice against Gentiles. Racism of any sort opposes the message of the gospel, unquote. We often think of jealousy 
in its sinful connotation. Making someone angry or jealous or possessive. But Paul is writing about a jealousy that's meant to prod, to provoke Israel to return to the Lord. Paul suggests that God's blessing and grace and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ should cause Jewish people everywhere to wake up. The Lord God in Christ visited the Gentiles. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he rises from the dead. The despised Gentiles, the forgotten Gentiles, experience hope, grace, mercy, peace. And see, again, I I want you to think this through. Is the provocation to make Jews want to be Gentiles? No. Is it in, in order for Gentiles to look, act, dress, talk like Jewish people? No. The thing that's supposed to arouse jealousy is that the Christian has what the Jewish person longs for. Peace, favor, forgiveness, the assurance of salvation. Paul wants the Jewish people to want what Gentile people have in Christ. That means love and hope and forgiveness. Paul wants Jewish people to think in their heads and say with their mouth, They have what I ought to have. They have what was meant for me. God's favor. God's peace. God's forgiveness. God's assurance. That's the point. Paul wants every Jewish person to look at the Christian believer and want what they have. Favor, freedom, Peace in their heart. The desire to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul's strategy for reaching the Jewish people doesn't always follow along what some people would suggest seems to be what's going to be the most effective means. You know, those in the modern messianic movement think that the best way to reach out to the Jewish person is to pretend that you're a Jew. To put on a kippur, or to wear a prayer shawl, or read from the Torah, or to read Jewish prayers. Now, don't get me wrong. Is it wrong? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to want to understand about Jewish roots? No, of course not. Paul cites, I become all things to all men that I might reach a few. Does Does Paul have to pretend to be a Jew in order to reach out to the Jewish people? He doesn't have to pretend because he really was a Jew. So what is the point? Clearly the point doesn't mean that Gentiles should pretend to be Jews. To wear Jewish clothes and blow a Jewish shofar and keep a Jewish feast. And attend a messianic congregation because this is what will really inspire. And this is what will really motivate Jewish people to hear and accept the claims of Christ. And Paul says, I'm going to suggest to you that the best way to reach a Jewish person is to love them. Is to care About them. It isn't to see them as a notch on your Bible. It is to love them and care for them. And some people will argue what about the long history of Gentile oppression? What about the long history of church persecution? What about global anti Semitism? Doesn't Gentile oppression, church persecution, global anti Semitism call for a new strategy? And I'm going to suggest to you that Gentile oppression, church persecution, and global anti-Semitism is never, ever, and should have never, ever been a part of Christianity. 
And that the strategy that Paul lays out is the strategy that's going to be the most effective strategy. Again, what is Paul saying? Do you want to know what's going to be the most amazing, engaging, compelling reason for any Jewish person or Gentile person for that matter or lost person for that matter? What is going to be the most compelling argument that's going to say, I want to be a Christian and the most compelling argument is going to be because you've experienced peace in your heart. You walk in joy and freedom and obedience. You walk in grace. You walk in love. You walk in freedom. Some people believe that the biggest, the biggest, the biggest stumbling block to Jewish evangelism is that Christ requires Jews to cease to be Jews. But is that true? It is not true. That's exactly right. My family, my father and his father and his father's father, We're born on the island of Sicily. I come from a long line of Sicilians. When I became a Christian, did it require that I stop eating spaghetti and meatballs on Sunday afternoon? I can't do it! Do you know what you call the Italian neighborhood? The Spaghetto. You can take the Italian out of the spaghetto, but you can't take the spaghetto out of the Italian person. If you're Irish, you don't cease to be Irish. If you're Ethiopian, you don't cease to be Ethiopian. And if you are a Jewish person, do you still have a Jewish identity and a Jewish language and a Jewish culture? Does the gospel require Jews to cease being Jewish? The answer is no. And does the gospel require Gentiles to culturally, linguistically become Jewish people? I don't think so. Israel's return will reveal future blessings. Look what Paul writes. He says, now, now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Paul is arguing Israel's failure doesn't mean that God is finished with them. Rather, Israel's fall has an unintended, unexpected blessing in what way? Paul uses the term fall. And he uses the term failure. It's the Greek word hetemei. It's a word that sometimes is translated overcome. It's sometimes translated defeat. In what sense? The Jews have failed to find And embrace the Hebrew Messiah. But Paul doesn't simply dwell on the Jewish fall. And he doesn't simply dwell on the Jewish defeat. But rather what that fall and failure spells. A future fullness. A fullness that is found in Christ as the Messiah. So what was the Gentiles condition? Prior to the life, the death. The resurrection of Jesus. If you were a Gentile. If you were living in a Gentile world. If a Gentile wanted to know God. If a Gentile wanted to participate in the blessings of God. They would have to have become a convert. Or a proselyte. Or what in the ancient world was called a God fearer. If you were a person living in the ancient world, you would have had to go to Israel. You would have to journey to Jerusalem three times a year. And even if you did, even if you decided to go, and even if you went to the temple, and even if you made it there, you would only be able to go to the court of the Gentiles because you see a Gentile who wants to know and love and serve the Jewish God still can't enter into the court of the Jews. Even in Jewish conversion, the Gentile didn't become ethnically Jewish. 
the Gentile would have to seek and obtain the services of a Levitical priest. I want you to think just how different that is on Pentecost. When the Gentiles have gathered in Jerusalem and they're hearing the gospel according to their own language. They're hearing the story of the wonderful works of God and the majesty of God. They're hearing in their own native language the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The Lord used the early disciples and the apostles to preach Christ to both Jew and Gentile. And the Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to be Christ followers. Paul preaches in Antioch. He preaches in Ephesus. He preaches in Philippi. He preaches in Athens. He preaches in Corinth. He preaches in Rome. And Gentiles in every province in every city, they hear the gospel and they obtain riches. Question. Do you think the riches that Paul is referring to are the riches of a Hebrew garb, of a Hebrew shawl, of a Hebrew prayer book? of a Hebrew feast, of a Hebrew tradition, of Jewish culture, or are the riches that he is describing, are these the riches of salvation in Christ? Is this forgiveness in Christ? Is this grace in Christ? Is this mercy in Christ? Is this the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation of God in Christ? If this is forgiveness and peace and assurance and joy... Are the riches of the love of God and the love of Christ and faith in Christ and hope in Christ. Remember Jesus told the Samaritan woman that the hour was coming and now is when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But men will go and they will worship the Father because God was seeking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. The Gentiles, who had occupied the place of dog compared to child, would experience the role of child and heir of salvation. And then Paul says in verse 13, read it for yourself, for I speak to you Gentiles Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Who is Paul speaking to? You know what? If you're not a careful Bible student, you might just immediately say, "Why? it's called the book of Romans, and he's, he's writing to the Romans, and clearly... There's a lot of Gentile Romans. We might at first blush think that Paul is speaking to the Gentile believers in Rome. But what if the context points to a different audience? Is Paul speaking of national Israel corporately? I think that the answer is yes. Is it possible... That Paul is speaking to corporate Gentiles in terms of the nations. If Paul is speaking of Israel nationally, might Paul be speaking of the Gentiles as nations or as people groups? And one of the reasons I think that this is probably the case is verse 22. We're going to skip ahead just for a moment. And I just want to read it real quick. It says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. If this is the church, or members in the church, You might falsely come to the conclusion that the church or the people in the church could be cut off. K 
can a Christian who knows and loves Jesus be cut off from the knowledge and the love of Jesus? Can a person who's experienced salvation in Christ be cut off from that salvation? Can the church cease to be the church? I don't think so. And this is one of the reasons why I think that the testimony of the Bible and the testimony of Christ supports the conclusion that we're better off seeing this as the Gentile nations that reject Christ or dismiss the gospel? Is it possible that a people group, is it possible that the Greeks, is it possible that the Egyptians, is it possible that the Chinese, is it possible that the English, is it possible that America can hear the gospel and learn about Christ And turn their back on the gospel. And turn their back on Christ. And turn their back on the promises. I think so. It was Alexis de Docqueville when he was traveling through America in the the middle decades of the 1700s before our own release from Britain. He wrote... America is great because America is good. And America will cease to be great when America ceases to be good. Paul boasts. Look what he says. I magnify my ministry. And by the way, Paul boasts of how God is at work among the Gentiles. Paul boasts, he says, I am an apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles. And what is his boast? I want you to think this through. What is his boast? What is he boasting about? He's boasting that the ministry that God has imparted to him and given to him, the gospel that he proclaims, that God has been saving the Gentiles. God has been filling the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. God has been forgiving them and God has been giving them peace. By the way, it was bad form in the ancient world. To boast. There was one exception. It was bad form for a person to draw attention to themselves or to their circumstances. There was, there was one exception. And the one exception, of course, was to motivate the audience to emulation or to defend oneself against false accusation. And when he says, I magnify my ministry, the word translated ministry is very, very interesting in the original language. It's diconia or diaconia. We get the word deacon from this. When he says, I magnify my ministry, it's taken from a root word, which means the kind of ministry that motivates you to serve other people in humility. He's magnifying a ministry of humility for what reason? He's magnifying the ministry because he wants everyone reading. He wants Jew and Gentile. He wants the past and the future to unite in the singular conclusion that God was saving them. That Gentiles were really becoming saved. Look in the context, the very next verse, in verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, it's impossible to read that passage and come to any other conclusion that Paul is writing when he says, those who are my flesh. He's talking about Jewish people. He's talking about descendants of Abraham and Isaac. And Jacob. He's not just simply speaking of the offspring of the Benjamites. He's speaking to all people who identify themselves as Jewish people. Look what he says. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. Question. Does Paul, even for a moment, even for a second, believe that he can save anyone? That's not what he's talking about, is he? He doesn't think that he's the agency of salvation. Except 
as a mouthpiece, except as a messenger, except as a person who brings that message. But he does believe that God can use him and his testimony and his ministry to the Gentiles to cause some Jews to consider the claims of Christ. And the magnification of Paul's ministry was in part to provoke, read it for yourself, jealousy. Paul has said, the salvation of the Gentiles in part was to serve as a prod for Jews to be saved. And now Paul writes, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Let me remind you of something. Has Paul repeatedly asserted that Jesus is the Messiah? What do you think the answer is? Has Paul repeatedly asserted that he's the Hebrew Messiah? Has he repeatedly asserted that he is the Messiah to everyone? Has he repeatedly asserted that Yeshua is the fulfillment of the prophecies that have been given by Moses, that have been given in the writings, that have been given in the Psalms, that have been given to the people through time and space? Has he repeatedly asserted that Yeshua is God's sacrifice for sin? Has he repeatedly asserted that Yeshua rose from the dead? Yes. You know, this is interesting to me because how in the world, how in the world, how in the stinking world can anyone who loves the Jewish people refrain from giving them the gospel? Who in their right mind would say, leave them alone? Leave them alone. Who in their right mind would say, leave the Russians alone? Leave the Ukrainians alone? Leave the Arabs alone? Leave the Muslims alone? Leave these people alone? Paul loves the Jewish people. And Paul doesn't even for a moment, even for a moment, even for a moment, think that they're fine. Apart from Christ. Apart from salvation. Apart from the gospel. And look what Paul writes. For if their being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul writes, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world. Does that mean the reconciling of Jew to Gentile? No. Does it mean the reconciling of the Gentile to the God who was estranged from them? That's exactly what it means. And so Paul envisions a world Where even in their failure and their disobedience, the multitude of the Gentiles turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he envisions, he envisions a miracle. Paul envisions a miracle of belief. What will their acceptance be? And again, I want you to think. Is he talking about their acceptance by God? Or their acceptance of the Messiah? Clearly, the context requires it to be their acceptance of the Messiah. Look what he he writes. As life from the dead. Paul likens Israel's return to Christ like an amazing, unbelievable, uncontainable, explosion of power as Jewish people everywhere come to a saving knowledge of the truth in Christ. Paul's repeating his argument from verse 12, but he's employing a new image. We speak of the Jewish people as being the chosen people, and that is true. Chosen to preserve the revelation of God. 
chosen to record and be stewards of the scripture, chosen to bring forth the Messiah. And now they've been cast away. In what sense? Has their fall and their failure meant Jew and Jewish people have outlived their usefulness to God and now God's plan and now God's purpose is over, over, over. Paul's abrupt answer, no. Paul points to the miracle of the salvation of the Jewish, of the, first of the Gentile people, And then the Jewish people, Jesus is the one who reconciles this fallen world. And so Paul wrote that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in what sense were the Gentiles brought into a position of favor and privilege? By accepting Christ. What of Israel? Paul says, Israel will be restored. Does that restoration begin now? Does it continue in the church age? Does that restoration take place at the end of the church age? Does that restoration take place at the beginning of the great tribulation? I know what you want. Well, tell us. You know, every once in a while, as hard as this is for you to accept, I don't know the answer. But I'm going to suggest an answer. I'm going to entertain a possibility. What if all three are true? What if it's possible that the restoration begins now and continues later, but sees the full and final fruition in this amazing, amazing moment of Christ's return? It's interesting to me that if the fall of the of the Jewish people meant unprecedented favor, unprecedented grace, powerful privilege, what will happen when Israel's eyes are opened? What will happen when the blind eyes finally see? What will happen when the deaf ears finally hear? What will happen when the hard hearts finally are opened? God, Paul doesn't just simply see the salvation of Israel, but he sees almost a nuclear explosion where the reality of the Jewish people coming to Christ is going to result in hordes, hordes, multitudes of nations ushered into the kingdom of God. Some people might think that Paul is speaking in an exaggerated sense or in hyperbole, but I don't think so. Because there's a clue that's given to us in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 where it says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea, it says in verse 9 of chapter 11. What happens to a world when an elect Israel, a saved Israel, a redeemed Israel returns to the land, returns to the Messiah? When Jehovah speaks everlasting comfort to Israel, as it's recorded in in Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 5, but in that specific area, it says, and the glory and the glory of Jehovah will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The idea being everyone, everywhere, is going to come to the conclusion, the Bible was right. The gospel was right. The prophecies were right. And Israel will experience mercy and grace and peace and peace. And peace. And then Paul says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So, how does the term first fruit and lump connect to one another? Again, if you're reading it and you go, Wait a minute, this looks like Paul's mixing his metaphors. Well, the word lump has already appeared in Romans in chapter 9, verse 21, where it, was, where it literally means 
A lump is that which is mixed or kneaded. Um, the idea is like bread. You, you take dough and you lump it together. It's used of clay in chapter 9, verse 21. But here it, it speaks of dough. The, fir, the term first fruit, a parche. We, we generally associate with fruit or grain or vegetable. The, 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 the connection is explained by Vincent. He writes, quote, The apparent confusion of metaphor, first fruit, Lump is resolved by the fact that the first fruit does not apply exclusively to harvest, but is the general term for the first portion of everything that's been offered to God. The reference here is to Numbers chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, which according to the Israelite tradition, they were to set apart or a portion of the dough of each baking of bread for a cake for the priests. That portion was called a parche, first fruits, unquote. The point that Paul is making is if the piece of dough that's been set apart to the Lord, so all the dough that's made from it. What is the application? I think that the application is Abraham. Abraham is set apart by God. If that's true, and I think it is true, it's true of Abraham's chosen posterity. Abraham is holy. In what sense? He's set apart by God for a specific task. Isaac and Jacob are holy. In what sense? They're set apart for a specific task. Jacob and his children are holy. In what sense? They're set apart for a sacred task. And with that setting apart comes privileges. And the second metaphor is the root and the branches. If the root is set apart, so are the branches. And so Paul seems to be saying that if Abraham, the root, is set apart to form a new society, a distinct group of people separate from and different from the nations, so Abraham's branches, those who are descended from him in the chosen line, are set apart. And you'll note my word, chosen. And I've used it repeatedly. Is everyone in Abraham's line chosen? No. Are some in Abraham's line chosen? Yes. So who's the first fruit? Abraham? Believing Israel? In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, You went after me in the wilderness. Israel was holiness unto Jehovah, the first fruits of his increase. And the lump? I think that the lump is the whole of the Israel of God. It's the beloved nation. It's the beloved nation. It's the beloved nation that have fallen and stumbled. It's the beloved nation. And if the root is Abraham, and if Abraham is the vault or the depository of the promises, the tree and its branches grow up in those promises. Abraham is the receptacle of the promise. And Abraham's seed is the promise. So let's ask a question. Is God doing something with Israel? I think that the answer is yes. I'm going to ask a harder question. Is God doing for Israel what he's unwilling to do for the Koreans, for the Chinese, for African people, for South American people? Is God doing something that he's unwilling to do for anyone else? And the answer has to be, God wants everyone to know and love Jesus. God is calling everyone to turn from their sin. God is calling everyone to embrace the Savior. God is calling Indians and Russians and Greeks and Italians to repent and turn to Christ. And so again, what are our instructions concerning the Jewish people? 
love them, lead them to Christ. Walk in joy and walk in forgiveness and walk in peace. His instructions are, you cannot, you must not harbor hatred or bitterness towards the Jewish people. What else? Believe the Jewish Bible. What else? Believe the Jewish prophets. What else? Be patient. Be kind. Be generous. Let me just ask you a quick question. Do any of you have, does anyone in this building have an unsafe family member, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a cousin, an aunt, someone you love, someone you love, anyone, lots of you? Do you hate them? Do you love them? Paul's instructions about Israel, love them, do not hate them, treat them like your family, your flesh and blood, treat them like you would treat anyone you love who has not yet come to Christ, who has not yet experienced grace, who has not yet experienced forgiveness. Be sensitive to their needs. Be compassionate in their plight. Live your lives filled with light. So that when your family member looks at you and says, I want what you have. I want that peace and I want that joy and I want that forgiveness and I want that assurance. That's what I want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our instructions are clear of what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to refrain from doing. And Heavenly Father, we understand that in your matchless wisdom that you've given us Christ. And Lord, we are going to discover something at the end of this chapter That repentant Israel will be saved through a deliverer. Lord, we know that Paul hung. He hung on the promise. And so all Israel will be saved. And Heavenly Father, we hang on the promise. That you... And your household will be saved. Lord, we hang on the promise that we can pray for our family and our friends. We, pray, we hang on the promise that we can love them and give them the gospel. We hang on the promise that the blind will see and the deaf will hear. And that the hardened hearts will be broken. We hang on the promise that you love us and that Jesus loves us and that we can walk in the assurance of that love in the assurance of that forgiveness in the assurance of that grace and Lord we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus name and everybody said and let's stand